Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Velarkis, your host and expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist. And today I'm joined by a special guest, Talia Kecelli from TC Nutrition. She's coming to us from London, UK. I think you might be my first international guest, even though you're really from Australia originally. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. So Talia's expertise is all in the eating disorder and disordered eating arenas. And fun fact, Talia was actually one of my very first dietitian supervisors when I was studying. So it feels like a lifetime ago now. And she moved over to the UK in 2018. And what a time you've had since you've been there in terms of your career. You've become a master practitioner in eating disorders. You've so expanded your clinic in this area. You've worked on Harley Street and the Retrition Clinic. Just so much has unfolded for you since you've gone over there. It's been so awesome to watch. And we're so excited to have your brains here today on this episode all about eating disorders and fertility. Just obviously a trigger warning before we get into today. Obviously, we're talking about eating disorders, disordered eating um, and body image concerns. So if that isn't what you need to hear right now, please go and seek some individualized therapy and advice. We've got the Butterfly Foundation here in Australia. Definitely connect with them if you need some support. So without any further ado, welcome Talia. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steph. What an introduction. <laughs> well, I feel like we we have, you know, we've connected more than once. So I feel like I could give you a more personalized bio. <laughs> <laughs> so good to have you. Thank you. Yeah, and you're so right. Like we, I've known you for... A long time now. How long have you been out? (laughs) I think it's coming up four or five years. I've lost track now. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, yeah, I know. What a difference. We were both at a children's hospital at the time and now you're in the UK doing eating disorders and I'm I'm still here, but (laughs) doing fertility nutrition, a little little bit different from the peds world. But Yeah. yeah, peds is kind of what got me into fertility anyway. So it all kind of comes around again, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's the same as as me for eating disorders. Yes. Yes. Your story to getting into eating disorders is a great one. I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. Yeah, definitely. So I did not have an interest in eating disorders when I was at university or even when I first graduated. I think like many dietitians, the idea of working in the field of eating disorders can be quite overwhelming. A lot of people steer clear of it. And I was definitely Mm -hmm. one of those dietitians. And then as it happened, when I worked at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, on my very first day, I was given my ward allocations and I was allocated to the Adolescent Eating Disorders Unit. I think my heart was racing so quickly when I heard that I was like, what am I getting myself into? I don't want to do it. This isn't an area I ever want to work in. And 
give it like a few weeks and I loved it. I was like, why haven't I worked in eating disorders before? (laughs) So yeah, I just fell into it naturally. And, you know, I, I, I did a couple of years at the children's hospital working with children and adolescents. And then after I finished that contract, I went to work with adults. So I worked at the Butterfly Foundation. I worked at one of the private eating disorder units in Sydney and also um, a New South Wales Health Community eating disorder role as well. And then I moved over to London and continued to specialise in that area. And now I don't think that I will go back to working in any other area. And I think too, like with eating disorders, it's funny how your mindset shifts because now when I look at, you know, I guess the trend of how people are eating, eating disorders is going to pop up in every single clinical area that you work as, as a dietitian. So I actually say it's a fantastic area to have experience in because everyone has a relationship Mm. with food. Any client that you work with, any patient potentially has a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder. So it's really good area to work at. Yeah. Wow. I can resonate so much with so much of what you said. And I think many new and hopeful dietitians also resonate with that almost an intense fear of those types of clients. I could even say like some people fall into that category. And I think it's the way potentially, I mean, this is just my idea, at least the way at least we were educated when I was around eating disorders. I think it, it was kind of fear-mongering because of the, I guess, the clinical risk associated with particularly inpatient um, setting eating disorder management in the sense that, you know, there's clinical risks and the dietitian becomes more responsible for those clinical risks compared to potentially some other clinical areas we work in. And I think that's what makes people nervous, like really worried, like, oh, gosh, like I'm really responsible for somebody's life here. Um And, yeah, you can get easily scared because you feel like, oh, not experienced in this. But exactly what you said, it pops up so much. And, you know, when I first started the dietologist, I was very much like, okay, we're all about reproductive health and fertility and all that good stuff. And naturally, eating disorders affect more females than males. I'm sure a statistic that you know much more intimately than I do. But naturally, I was seeing pretty much 100% females in our practice. And so eating disorders came up, even if it wasn't their primary presentation, either a history of or stuff like that. And so naturally, we all had to get better at not only understanding where they were coming from, but management of from a clinical setting and um, also just those counselling skills that go or go along with like disordered eating and eating disorder management. So I think this fusion of this topic is going to be really interesting. I know we've explored it together in some blog posts in the past, but before we dive into the, that more detail of the crossover areas, how common are eating disorders globally and what is the definition of an eating disorder? What are the types? How does someone know they've got one? You know, those kind of basic stats about eating disorders. Yeah. So it's extremely difficult to understand the extent of eating disorders globally. So estimates are at least, you know, approximately 9% of the population sort of lifetime prevalence. So we know that approximately 1 million people in Australia have an eating disorder in any given year, about 1.25 in the UK. Um, So we know that it's common and, you know, when you see those numbers and when you work with clients with eating disorders, they often think that they're the only person, they're the exception. So it's really important to reinforce that 
this is this is common. A lot of people are suffering with an eating disorder. And then, as you said, in addition to that, we have disordered eating, which is, you know, I assume is much larger than eating disorder numbers. Um, but you know, there's so many countries that we don't have the data. So a lot of underrepresentation. We know that eating disorders can occur in people of all ages, genders, all socioeconomic groups from different cultural backgrounds. But a lot of people don't seek help. A lot of people aren't getting diagnosed and the help that they need. So numbers are very much uh, an an estimate. Mm. Um, And when we look at what is an eating disorder and what is disordered eating, so eating disorders are what we call transdiagnostic. There's a spectrum from disordered eating all the way through to a clinically diagnosed eating disorder. So when we look at clinical eating disorders, what we're talking about there is that someone's experience of having of their eating problems meets certain criteria. So we look at the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Eating Disorders, and that categorizes different types of eating disorders. So most people will have heard of eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. They're sort of the the most common, um, but actually when you look at the numbers, the most common eating disorder actually falls into the category of OSFED, so other specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, there's also FEDNEC, there's a few different acronyms for that. But that uh, accounts for about 50% of eating disorders. So then mm. within that group of eating disorders, you have what we call atypical anorexia nervosa. You have um, things like purging disorder, night eating syndrome, uh, orthorexia, which no doesn't you know technically have diagnostic criteria, but those sort of um, the etiology falls under that band. So anorexia nervosa is actually the least common eating disorder. It accounts for about three to 5% of all eating disorders. Um, but I think uh, in our society, we always think, oh, eating, you know, eating disorder must be anorexia nervosa. But most people that have an eating disorder are not in thinner bodies. Um, we can't tell that someone has an eating disorder just by looking at them. So mm. how those eating disorders different, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, you know, there's different criteria, but obviously we're looking at things like, you know, someone's relationship with food in their body. You know, are they trying to actively lose weight or is their weight below what is healthy for them? Are they engaging in any disordered behaviours such as purging? So that could be through vomiting, laxative use or over-exercise. Um, and what, you know, how is someone eating? Are they on a restrictive diet? Are they engaging in binge eating? So there are different criteria that need to be met to different lengths of time that someone might engage in those sorts of behaviours as well to mm. meet that main diagnostic criteria. Yeah. And if somebody has disordered eating, what does that look like in comparison to some of those clinical features of those clinical eating disorders? Because like you mentioned, probably a lot of people have disordered eating and we could put that down to lots of different factors, but mainly environmental, I'm going to have a guess. And what does that look like? Is there a definition of that or is it more loose? Yeah, it's it's much more loose, which makes it really difficult because even when you think, it, okay, so what's disordered eating, but what's normal eating? Yeah. <laughs> That's different for everyone as well. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there is a beautiful definition by Ellen Satter from the States. Mm. But really, you know, normal eating is going to look different for everyone. So then when we look at disordered eating, you know, things that I really look out for are, you know, are people skipping meals? Are they cutting out certain foods or food groups? Mm -hmm. 
you can still be engaging in some of those behaviors, like I mentioned, purging or binge eating, but to a lesser extent, Mm. um, you may be engaging in fasting behaviors. You may just have a very unhealthy relationship with food. Mm. So that it might be very rule-based, fear-driven. Am I only allowed to eat carbohydrates after or before six o'clock? Um, can mm. I only eat cake once a month? I'm, mm. I tell myself I'm not allowed to have chocolate, but then when I eat it, I overeat it. So it really comes down to that relationship with food when we're thinking about disordered eating. Mm. And it, it when we think about normal eating, so maybe that's going to be something in comparison that we can look at too. So we know with normal eating, as much as there's not a solid definition, we know that to be a normal eater, we're looking at regularity. So people are eating three meals and snacks around that depending on their lifestyle. The amount of food that they're eating is adequate to meet their nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of foods. No one's cutting out certain foods or food groups. And we're eating in a very flexible, spontaneous way. There are no rules that are driving normal Mm. eating. Um, You can eat all foods. It's intuitive. Um, So if we are anything but that, then we're delving into the disordered Mm. eating side of it. Yeah. And look, I think to like apply this to our listeners who are mostly going to be in either thinking about trying to conceive, you know, actively trying to conceive or in a fertility treatment setting and you know, maybe exploring how diet and lifestyle is going to help support them in that. It tends to be very prescriptive in this arena and quite, you know, like not rule-based but certainly principle-based. And so sometimes this can be in conflict. And, you know, somebody asked me a beautiful question the other day and they said, when is it when is it harmful that I'm over, like, fixating on hitting these things to a point of like when is it perfectionism and when is it not a, not healthy, not so healthy? And it was a great question because honestly that tipping point is going to be different for everyone. But my, you know, memo to people in applying, you know, thinking, oh, maybe I fit into some of those disordered eating categories and maybe I'm cutting out certain food groups because I'm trying to for my fertility I think that like, for example, alcohol, not as in like a food group, which is not my, which is not my MO as most of you know, but point is, is it's usually a means to an end. It's usually temporary. And there's usually some, there's usually some more wiggle room than what most people think. So most people think alcohol, that means I can't have a drop. That doesn't mean that usually isn't what it means. For example, usually means you can have some in small amounts less often. And it's just about rewiring that and also knowing when is this causing you more harm than good from a stress and anxiety and or guilt and or resentment perspective. If it's starting to tend towards that, you need to go and seek some help and some clarity and somebody to help you reframe all that for you so that you can have a healthy relationship with food whilst optimizing your diet for fertility it's very possible and it's very valuable to explore that work before you try to conceive because in pregnancy and as a parent modeling those behaviors to your future child, as we both know in peds, we've both seen this (laughs) for ourselves, that's valuable to sort before if you can. If you've got the opportunity to, I'd really recommend it. So if you're feeling a little bit conflicted, just know that If you're finding those two worlds hard to reconcile, there is a nice middle ground. They aren't mutually exclusive and you can find peace in the middle. Just you might need some help. So reach out if if you're one of those people. So I just wanted to connect those dots for people. In terms of 
the eating disorders in this group of people, particularly people of reproductive age, people who are trying to conceive, what, like from your clinical experience more so, what does that look like and how, if at all, does it impact their ability to conceive? So we know that eating disorders are most prevalent uh, among that younger age group. So the average age of onset is, you know, adolescence, puberty, around 12, 13 years, up until about 25 years of age. So when we look at that, we know that there's a lot of women who are being diagnosed potentially at the same time that they are thinking about having children or still in recovery at the point that they're, they're thinking of trying to conceive. It is, you know, it's obviously very complicated. Everyone is different. But when we look at, you know, do eating disorders affect someone's chance of conceiving? The answer is yes. Um, Again, very complicated, but there was a study in Sweden that looked at who approached uh, fertility treatment centers. And so the stats that they found was that there was about 7% of people had a history of an eating disorder seeking fertility treatment versus about 4.5% that didn't have a history of an eating disorder. So we know that it is, you know, people that don't have a history of eating disorders can also struggle with fertility, as you know, Um, but there is a slightly higher percentage for people that have had a history of eating disorders. And that can be for a number of reasons. I mean, if we put the sort of physical aspect aside for a second before I delve into that, even just thinking about someone's, you know, history in terms of any past trauma um, in terms of avoidance of sexual relationships, poor body image, if there has been any abuse in the past. So that's something that can complicate it even in terms of just having sex and conceiving. Um, And then we look at more the physiological side effect, um, which is, you know, low levels of libido and poor sexual sexual function. A lot of women that I work with, and I'm sure that you work with Steph, have or are diagnosed with hypothalamic amenorrhea. So really one of the, the main things that I see in my clinic is that women with eating disorders or with a history of eating disorders really have struggle menstruating and that can be due to low body fat percentage which we see Mm. is quite common um, being underweight and that doesn't and when I say underweight I don't just mean underweight according to BMI it can be that you are weight suppressed so you don't have to be underweight to lose your period people can lose their period in any body body shape or size so that's really important to remember too because it comes down to your nutrition your stress levels and exercise as well so when we see people struggling with conception in my mind I'm always thinking of that triangle nutrition stress exercise and the impact that that has on your sex hormones, on your estrogen levels. Do you have enough body fat to produce enough estrogen? Uh, Yeah, is your body stressed? Because when we think about amenorrhea, so that loss of menstruation, you have to think about what's actually happening in the body. Why is it doing that? Why is it switching into protection mode? And why Mm. is your body trying to keep you safe? Um, So in order to then conceive, um, we have to try and get that body feeling safe again. But on the flip side as well, people that have either in recovery from an eating disorder or have a history of eating disorder, there's also many unexpected or unplanned pregnancies too. So although it's for some, it's a struggle to conceive, mm. others will conceive, you know, without trying. So there's always going to be two sides of the coin. Yeah. Just like any 
group of people, right? Like any group that's at a higher reproductive, you know, risk of infertility. People with endometriosis still conceive on accident. People with PCOS still conceive by accident. I mean, seems baffling to the people who might be listening being like, that's not me, Mm. but it still happens. And actually probably a lot more than what you may think just because it's not happening in your world, but clinically I see it happening. Now, I think what, what you said there was so beautiful in terms of that trifecta That's exactly how I think about it as well. And that physiological aspect. And I guess with hypothalamic amenorrhea, I just want to elaborate on that, which is a diagnosis that many people receive with a history of an eating disorder or are currently living with an eating disorder experience, which is that secondary amenorrhea, which means you once had a normal period or had a period and you were once ovulating and now you are not. But also, can we talk a little bit about primary amenorrhea in people with eating disorders, as in people that may have been living with an eating disorder in those adolescent years where puberty was meant to be unfolding and was perhaps suppressed due to their clinical state with a clinical eating disorder and the impact that 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 can then have on their fertility? Because we talk a lot about secondary amenorrhea, but there's there's not heaps of people, but there certainly are people that are living with primary amenorrhea and it's a completely different ballpark because we can't necessarily recover the period with the trifecta alone. The trifecta is going to help, but it's not going to be enough necessarily and that's really when we're going to have to consider fertility treatment. So what's the physiology of behind that? Yeah. So I guess, you know, when we think about uh, puberty, so primary amenorrhea, um, is when a woman won't um, sort of ever, yeah, as you said, ever start their period. So when someone has developed an eating disorder at that young age in that window of puberty, I guess the, the way that I look at it is that your sex hormones continue to stay at an adolescent or pre-adolescent level. So your body never gets into that stage of, oh, I'm ready or I could potentially conceive. So Mm. When we think about the issues there, if, if you're not able to, if your body's not able to flip from being in that, I need to stay safe to, yeah, I could conceive now, mm. then as you said, there are going to be issues long term and someone might need fertility treatment. Um, and yeah, as you said, it's it's definitely more, it's not as common. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely not as common, but it definitely definitely exists for people who have particularly that adolescent eating disorder experience because I see some people like oh yeah I've had an eating disorder when I was a kid or when I was a teenager and they kind of brush past and they just keep going with their medical history I'm like oh rewind we need to know what happened (laughs) we need to know what happened there so I can work out how this may be impacting you today if at all and what that's looking like so certainly with people with hypothalamic amenorrhea with the right supports, we can recover a regular menstrual cycle and ovulation in most instances. Would you agree? I would say, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And in terms of then the different fertility paths that people would walk down just from my background, most people with primary amenorrhea end up requiring um, more invasive, I guess, or more progressed kind of fertility treatment. So sometimes ovulation induction is attempted, but sometimes that doesn't work depending on how you respond to medication. So that's where you take a medication to help your body release an egg because it's probably not a process that your body's ever done the hormonal orchestra to and or IVF is typically what's 
offered in that stream. And then for hypothalamic amenorrhea, usually diet and lifestyle, the first port of call. At the same time, you still want to be exploring diet and lifestyle for primary. But with the hypothalamic amenorrhea, with enough time and energy dedicated into recovery, you can usually get it back naturally. And then you pretty much are like everybody else is trying to conceive, right? Then just you go back into that population group. Otherwise, ovulation induction is super helpful um, in those instances and many people end up conceiving like that as well. But not statistics, just experience from seeing lots of people with these concerns in clinic, right? So if somebody's listening to this, Talia, and he's thinking, oh, some of this stuff either sounds like me or my friend or my partner or my sister or my sister-in-law or my brother-in-law or somebody in their life, what would you suggest? Because I think sometimes we may recognize within ourselves something isn't isn't right with our relationship with food, whether that be an exercise in our body, whether that be disordered eating or, you know, that transdiagnostic spectrum moving towards more of a clinical eating disorder. But then knowing what to do with that to start to seek some help can feel really scary and overwhelming for many people and often is why there's such a delay to getting treatment. Mm -hmm. And I certainly see that in the fertility space as well. So what would be, you know, some steps that people could take if they're starting to recognise this within themselves or within somebody they love or know? What are your tips there? Because it's tricky, tricky waters to navigate. It is. It's really difficult and, you know, I absolutely say to to everyone please you know go and speak to GP but then you know also in saying that I've heard of some really heartbreaking stories when people have had the courage been brave enough to go and seek medical advice and then their experience hasn't been validated and they've been turned away from treatment so it is really difficult and you know I, I do know lots of people have to fight for their health to be looked after and looked into. But I would say, yeah, please do go and speak to your GP. And what I would say there in terms of tips is that please take someone with you mm. because it can be a really difficult appointment to open up. Um, it might be that you need to write some things down before going into depression. Um, and even when you're thinking about booking a GP, you know, speak to the receptionist, ask is there anyone that specialises in mental health or has an interest in mental health so you can be put in contact with the right GP and take your support person with you. Even before that step though, I would say even just speaking to someone is a first step. So if you can speak to someone Mm. that you trust, um, whether that be your partner or a friend or a parent, but that is the first step in in getting help is actually recognizing Mm. that you need it. And we know that especially with eating disorders, and I hate these statistics, but the earlier intervention, the better when we look at recovery. So recovery from an eating disorder can take up to six to eight years. So that was some Mm. research that came out in Australia. Um, And we know that unfortunately about 25% of people will mm. live with their eating disorder chronically. So getting the help that you need is is really important. Um, and then aside from, yeah, sort of speaking out to, to loved ones, your GP, I really do think in this space having that psychological support is extremely helpful and I would encourage you know majority of people if they can access that to seek that psychological support. Yeah, trusted people, trusted professionals, yeah. And I think, like, not to be too unconventional on that path, Tiles, but I'm even thinking in some circumstances where maybe if you don't have that GP relationship, for example, if you don't have a regular GP or a GP that you feel like maybe this might get swept under the carpet 
or perhaps that you, because some people as well, when they're in this phase of contemplating seeking help or contemplating that maybe this is an issue, some of the thoughts that stories they tend to tell themselves is, oh, I'm, I'm not sick enough or it's, it's not bad enough yet or I'll wait for it. But I think that message around earlier intervention, even if you think even for like an iota within you that maybe it's too soon, it's probably not too soon to go and get help. So go and seek some help. And if you need a health like advocate with you, go and find a healthcare professional, whether that be a psychologist or a dietitian, to help you advocate or connect you with a GP, someone that they know in their network. Because we all know people that are great with eating disorders in the medical space and we all know and psychologists do as well. So I think that's probably a really valuable thing and having like a health advocate, whether that be your partner or a friend or your other healthcare professional, that can be really valuable to like getting the right care and getting connected with the people in the, the right spots. Would you agree with that? Sometimes you have to go the other way around. Absolutely. Like I, yeah. And uh, you know, as you're saying that I was nodding because you know, the number of women that I've worked with that I have been the first port of call and then I've had to do that advocacy work and you know, that's absolutely okay as well. They're Mm. still getting the help that they need. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with what you said. And I also agree with what you were saying about, Oh, not sick enough. Yes. Not sick enough. Thank you, Steph. Yes, you can read my mind. Yeah. So I always, you know, I always like to think too, you know, if you had a pet, you know, lots of people have dogs and love dogs. If you saw that your dog stopped eating or that Mm. it was lying in the corner of your room all day and looking really upset, would you wait two months to take it to the vet? Oh, God, no. No, you wouldn't. You would act straight away. Mm. So we have to put, you know, we have to think about ourselves as human beings, as a mammal. And if there are these warning signs, that is enough of a reason to go and seek Mm, help. Absolutely. But it is extremely difficult to do. And we both understand that, you know, that is one of the reasons why people um, get delayed in treatment. Absolutely. I love that analogy. That's great. I'm going to use that one. That's great. Because I know everyone talks about mental health like it's a broken bone. We've all heard that one. But I think like making it not about us at all, (laughs) making it about something that we love. And you are somebody that is loved in your life. Like so many people love and care about you just like you love and care about your pet. And so that's that's so that's such a great analogy. Thanks for sharing that with us. I wanted to just touch on a couple of myths, which I know we've touched on briefly. But especially those clients of mine that do end up recovering from HA or hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we've mentioned a few times and we haven't really dived into, but we have a whole other episode with um, our mutual colleague, Sarah Liz King, on this topic. So scroll back and go listen to that one if you're like, what? what's this word? It's, it's all in there. So when people recover from HA with an eating disorder, history of an eating disorder and or disordered eating, they tend to just come bubbling up with like a million questions about their fertility. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but they'll be like, should I go freeze my eggs? What do I do now? Do I need to use contraception? Like all these things. And so I wanted to touch on some of these collaboratively so we can just clear the air in this arena. So the first one is because I haven't been ovulating this for however long, a year, 10 years, 15 years, never have, et cetera, Does that mean I've saved up my eggs? So I've got more eggs than everybody else. Is that an accurate statement? No. 
Unfortunately, no. And sadly, no. So, you know, we are born with millions or billions of eggs. and yep, millions. Yep, millions. And we continue to lose eggs every day up until menopause. So I think people get confused in that, you know, they think that every single egg that is sitting in our ovaries is going to... Be ovulated. Be ovulated, yes, exactly. But that's, you know, that's one egg a month, if that. Yes, (laughs) sometimes two if you're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so no, we are losing, I think it's like, you know, up to a thousand eggs a month or something Mm -hmm. like that. So unfortunately, no, you can't save up no um, your eggs no sadly no and you know just because you've had an eating disorder or a history of one doesn't mean that your egg quality is snap frozen in time to the last time you had a period either um so if the last time you had a period you were 21 and you're like great i'm 33 now i've got the, the eggs of a 21 year old it's not like freezing your eggs uh, because they have lived through all the exposures with you and all the oxidative stresses and so on so sadly no um and just because you have this diagnosis doesn't mean you won't have any comorbidities we call them in clinical land but other diagnoses that could affect your egg count either by increasing it or reducing it so you can also have hypothalamic amenorrhea and also be living with PCOS, which we know typically is characterized by lots of follicles, or you could be living with primary ovarian insufficiency and you go into early menopause. There's nothing to say that you can't have both and not to say that everyone will, but this exists in our world. Nothing is ever like single, single streamed. We've always got lots of things going on. So now is the opposite true? Just because I haven't been having a, a period or ovulating does that mean I have I've lost more eggs compared to everyone else that has been yeah. ovulating and having a period? Yeah, I guess for some people potentially they might lose more eggs mm. than than others. We don't know um, yeah. because everyone is just so different. So it, it could happen, but it might not be. It's not necessarily linked to having had an eating disorder or not. That's happening outside of that. Yeah, so it's going to come into those other co-diagnosis which I just mentioned so no uh, HA or having an eating disorder or a history of isn't going to make you have fewer eggs or poorer quality eggs from what we know although we do have to factor in things like stresses um, and other things that can sometimes be you know comorbid issues with eating disorders you know sometimes there's more use of um, cigarettes and tobacco for example and that's going to have a negative impact on egg quality even if you stopped now you've got a history of that as just as one example but there's lots of other things again that falls outside of that but may be more prevalent in certain demographics the other one which we touched on is relying on the lack of ovulation slash your period as contraception yes do bust this one for us Talia. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So, yeah, we mentioned it before and, you know, I even said there's unexpected unplanned pregnancies. So even if you're not menstruating, it does not mean that you have not ovulated Mm -hmm. or you could have ovulated and then a couple of weeks later you get your first period in five years. We just never know Mm -hmm. when someone's period might come back. If they've got enough energy to ovulate, of course, yes, usually ovulation comes with menstruation, but, Mm -hmm. you know, not always. There might be a delay or not always exactly. Mm-hmm. So 
If you are not menstruating, if you have amenorrhea, it is so important to use contraception Mm -hmm. if you are not planning to fall pregnant. Yes. And same for, I see lots of people postpartum who recover their HA, they conceive, they have a baby, they're breastfeeding, and sometimes we see lactational amenorrhea, and then they're like, oh, is it HA again? I can't tell. They can't tell what's lactational amenorrhea and what's HA And when is it meant to come back? And sometimes there are longer delays to getting it back if you've had a history of and so on and so forth. It gets a little bit muddied. Mm. So if you're in that boat of like you're trying maybe for future or you just want to reinstate your period because, you know, period's an important sign of health for our bones, our heart, our everything. So if you're in that spot, definitely seek help because it sometimes is tricky to nut all that out. But it's the same as breastfeeding, right? Like when people are breastfeeding, you know, you may have lactational amenorrhea, but you may just spit out an egg and never get a period and bada bing, bada boom, you're pregnant again. So, yeah, I mean, it happens. So, yeah, same, same kind of, <laughs> same kind of guidelines apply there. If you don't want that to happen, make sure you're taking relevant precautions. Awesome. Was there any other myths in this arena that you could think of, Talia, that we could bust? Because I feel like I get some of these questions on the regular from my clients. Yeah, I think one that one other one that came to my mind was about the oral contraceptive pill. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah, so I get it all the time. So what I'm talking about there is this belief that if you are on the pill, then you are having a period. So it's really important to reinforce that if you are bleeding on birth control or a contraceptive pill that is a withdrawal bleed, you are not ovulating. And and where it's really difficult is when people are recommended to start the oral contraceptive pill to, and I say this in the quotations, to kickstart their period or to get their period back. That is not the case. That is <laughs> Steph's face. Um, what that actually does is it masks the underlying cause. So for a lot of people that I work with, a lot of women, I actually talk about coming off the pill to see if they are actually, if their body and their mind is at a place that they can healthily and naturally have a natural menstrual cycle. And use another form of contraception that isn't hormonal. Yes. Picking up what we're putting down. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, if that is your goal. Absolutely. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because often, and also I think as well, It. I don't know if you experienced this, but I feel like it worsens some of the thought patterns around an eating disorder because like, well, look, I am having a bleed. I'm bleeding on the pill. Everything's fine. I'm at the, you know, at a healthy body fat percentage for me. I am eating enough. I'm not exercising too much. I'm not purging. And it almost like feeds into that. And so sometimes we need to take it off and see what's happening underneath that. I mean, rarely do I see people on birth control because huh, it's not my niche. Uh, every, everyone's trying to do the opposite. But I'm so glad you brought that up because that would have that way over my head. It's not my, not my day-to-day. Yeah. Uh, or people that used to be on the pill that probably had HA in the past, like, oh, yeah, I was having mm-hmm. having a period, no idea. And then they come off and they're like, oh. it's like, yeah. it's not you didn't lose your period. You probably just didn't have it in that time either. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, it's really important that I so agree with you. Like I work with so many women who once they get their period back, they think that they've recovered from their eating disorder, which is a whole nother topic, and I won't delve into it Oh, now. yeah. Yeah. 
really important that you said that. And I think the other one, Steph, that I was thinking of is Mm. this belief for women that the female body requires so little energy. Oh, please bust this one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when people are being put on these 1,200-calorie diets, 1,500-calorie diets, it is, you know, that is for some people not even the minimum amount of energy that you need just to survive, let alone to thrive. Mm-hmm. The, you know, we're human bodies, we're mammals. Again, thinking about the the pet analogy, would you restrict the food that you're giving to one of your pets, knowing knowing that it needed more energy to be able to run around and play, um, and live a really healthy and happy life? Mm-hmm. So. Please, please, if someone tells you to go on a 1,200-calorie or 1,500-calorie diet, please do not do it. It's it's quite frightening. I swear, when we were at Kids Hospital at Westmead, we had four-year-olds on more calories than that. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that's what's comical about it. I'm only laughing because it's, like, mind-boggling. Yeah. It's, not, it's not actually funny. No. It's just like, whoa, yeah. like, that's just not, not okay. Yeah. And I think that's actually an email I get really often when I send people like here's like a checklist of a few things that you can start working on to help with your your fertility and your preconception health people like it's so much I don't eat that much and I'm like yeah "Yeah, why is that (laughs) most people that are you know quote-unquote normal eaters as we define yeah could easily manage that and maybe more Well, I appreciate you bringing that one up because that is certainly important. Now, we're nearly out of time, but I wanted to ask you, somebody listening to this, maybe lived with an eating disorder in their past, maybe struggling with disordered eating present day or in the past, or somebody that's currently living with an active eating disorder. You know, they're thinking about trying to conceive or they're trying to conceive and maybe this has kind of like stirred them into some action, which is you know, all that we're trying to achieve is just one person to take some action about their health from listening to this, right? So, you know, I I say this a lot to my clients in this preconception phase is think about the next step. Think about where you want to be. You want to be pregnant in all instances in my scenario, right? You want to be pregnant. Okay. What do we need to do so that you are in such a good spot that when you become pregnant and all the physiological and mental changes that you're going to go through, that you're going to be as resilient as possible to navigate those? Because after all, an eating disorder is a mental illness. Lots of physiological presentations, but mental illness, right? So I always try and get people as resilient as possible in preparation for pregnancy so that they are supported. But a lot of people do struggle with the body image aspect of pregnancy and beyond, which is a story for another day. But if people are trying to get their treatment team together in this preconception preparation phase, who would be like, if they could access it, who would be like your dream team in this scenario, Talia? Dietitian, psychologist, (laughs) dietitian number one. No. Uh, Yeah. Dietitians. Immediately. (laughs) Yeah. When I think about, again, the absolute minimum, it's it's that triangle. It's a dietitian. Mm. So it's nutrition. You've got the psychologist looking after your mental health and then you've got your GP or other medical practitioner looking after your physical health. So that's like the minimum that I recommend. Of course, there's then going to be the next outer circle, which might be an endocrinologist, a gynecologist. Mm-hmm. It could be a recovery coach if they're going through eating disorder recovery. Um, so yeah, there are definitely lots of people that you could have in a treatment team, but at the bare minimum, I would say those three. Yeah. yeah. And it's not an optional to see your dietitian. <laughs> it's not an optional extra. <laughs> Just let me put that out there. I've had that conversation many a time. It is essential. It is It is absolutely yes. essential. It's the core. Core, core. Yes, just as important as going to your psychologist every week, 
got to see your dietitian when they ask to see you. It's not it's not because we miss your face, although we do, but it's it's for a reason that we need to see you when we say we yeah. need to see you. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, it's just so important when we think about, you know, if someone then does fall pregnant mm. and has a history of an eating disorder yes, or are in recovery from an eating disorder, we didn't really touch on this, mm. but it is, it is a high risk time. Mm. You are battling with body changes, morning sickness, cravings, increasing weight, Mm -hmm. potential limitation in physical activity because you might feel unwell or, you know, obviously as pregnancy continues. So as much as it is important while you are trying to conceive during pregnancy and post-pregnancy, you know, in a way can be even more important because then you're also looking after you and the health Mm -hmm. of your baby after birth. So there's lots of different stages and support might differ in those stages, but it is a long-term commitment to treatment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't end when you get a positive pregnancy test. It's not the end of the road from a treatment perspective, from a nutrition perspective for sure, at least, and psychology as well. And often, I don't know if you've experienced this, I've seen this quite quite a decent amount, people with a history of an eating disorder who felt like, oh, I'm so recovered, I'm great, preconception, just try and do the right thing, come to me. Let's tick some boxes, make sure everything I'm eating enough. I just want to make sure I'm eating enough, which is a green flag when somebody with the history of eating disorder comes and sees me for a preconception chat. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about what the next step is going to be for them into pregnancy. And it's it's surprising how many people are surprised by how much pregnancy is a trigger for them to go back in some of those thought patterns when it comes to um, their eating disorder, even if it's been a long time and they've been recovered for a long time, it is a big transition in many ways. So like having those team connections again just before, critical, makes a big difference. Yeah, because then you can kind of pick up really easily where you, wherever you need that help. Oh, Talia, this has been such an amazing episode. I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing from you because I know every time I chat to you, I learn something more. That statistic of 9% really just like hurt my brain. Um, and right at the top, I was like, oh, <laughs> I wish I wish sometimes I'd recorded the video, but also I don't wish. Because um, <laughs> then I would have to do my hair and makeup and I don't <laughs> want to do that. Um, where can people find out more about you and TC Nutrition and your awesome clinic and the work that you do? We'll obviously pop all the show links in the show notes and all that good stuff, but give us your shout outs. Thanks, Steph. So yeah, the, the main platform is Instagram. So you can find me at TC Nutrition and then you can link through to my website where you'll find out more about the clinic um, and yeah, what I do and the services I'm able to offer. Yes. I've referred so many of my clients to your rule breaker challenge. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. If you don't know what that is, I just, I'll sprinkle that little <laughs> teaser, go to a website and check yeah. it out. <laughs> Thanks again, Talia. If you've enjoyed this episode, everyone, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And now there's a little review feature on Spotify. So do use that and share it with a loved one who you feel this might be beneficial to. This could be the little conversation starter about this topic. Just share this potty episode and, you know, could could kickstart a great productive and healthy conversation about this topic. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. I'll catch you next week. Bye. (laughs) 